Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. All ghost hunters, gather around, gather around. Night is falling. People are gathering on a street that's lined with huge Victorians for San Francisco's popular ghost hunt. Let us continue. Christian Kajigo is the actor leading this tour. He's wearing full 19th century dress. He's got a top hat and a clacking cane. And on every corner, he tells us another ghoulish story, from ghostly apparitions to an aristocrat who disappeared under grisly circumstances. Windows and doors are heard to slam shut throughout the entire house, as inside they discovered the pickled body of George Atherton. I'm Sasha Koka, and on today's California Report magazine, Spooky Tales of the Past, we're going to visit one of the state's most remote lighthouses, Ghost hunters say they can still hear the restless souls of the people who lived and worked there. Is anybody else here with us for right now that we can't see? Pokey, are you here? Can you come say hi? We'll also dig into the savory history of an iconic California seafood stew. It's just this beautiful red color steaming. Oh wow, a lot of tentacles happening. Let's head back to that ghost hunt in San Francisco. There's a stop on this tour that tells a real-life story that's stranger than any Halloween legend. We're going to hear now from KQED's Carly Severn, bringing us the tale of a heroine who somehow became a demon in her own lifetime. This unlit street corner is dark, so dark that our tour guide, Christian, places his flickering lantern down on the sidewalk to illuminate a large plaque under our feet, dedicated to a woman who lived and died here over a century ago. And she was said to be worth $30 million. For anybody, any time, that is an accomplishment. For a woman in the Victorian time, quite an accomplishment. For an African-American woman, for that time, Almost unheard of. Almost. This, my friends, is Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant. The excitable crowd on this tour has come to be scared. But sometimes, Christian says, they get more than they bargained for. What is that? Mary's ghost is said to summon chills, frighten dogs, even throw nuts from the nearby eucalyptus trees at people like us. Not on your head, from behind on your back. After the crowds disperse into the night, I wondered, why would this soul still be so restless? 
I wanted to learn more about the flesh and blood Mary. And there's one person who knows her better than most, Sacramento writer Sushil Bibbs. Her life is so enshrouded in mystery because she was her own spin doctor. Mary wrote three autobiographies, but each one contradicts the other. Here's what we do know about her. She was born a slave in Georgia. She was raised in Nantucket in indenture. There on the East Coast, years before she came to San Francisco, Mary was a crucial figure in the civil rights fight, secretly teaming up with abolitionists and rescuing escaped slaves on the Underground Railroad. In this world, nothing could ever be as it seemed. She was very used to being covert, and she often said that words were made to conceal feelings and that she was good at it. And that double life included presenting as a white woman when she could. Early on, she married well and rich. And when she was widowed, she inherited all that money. $45,000 in gold from her husband's estate. And she made the journey by steamer to San Francisco in 1852, still passing as white. She found a town filled with men come to make their gold rush fortunes. They were far from home and needed somewhere to live. So Mary buys up boarding houses and laundries. All kinds of things that she thinks will be a niche in San Francisco to make more money. Thing is, she stayed close to the action in these boarding houses and often even cooked for these men. Why? Because you can hear secrets that way. And she used them as leverage to further her real cause, bringing the Underground Railroad out west. You see, only San Francisco's growing black community knew her as a black woman. They called her the Black City Hall, the place where you go to get what you need. She helped African-Americans get jobs on steamers and in homes and in, and in her own businesses. Not only that, Almost a century before Rosa Parks, Mary Ellen Pleasant challenged the city's segregated transit system. She won in and out of court, and in 1868, African Americans could ride the trolleys in San Francisco. After the Civil War, over a decade after she arrived in the city, Mary finally checked the box that said black on the census of 1865. Sushil, who also performs as Mary on stage, reads from her memoirs. My cause was the cause of freedom and equality for myself and for my people. And I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. But by the 1880s, the wild, mud-caked San Francisco that Mary Ellen Pleasant the capitalist had carved her way into had itself transformed. Very much more overtly racist. Across the nation, emancipated slaves became a convenient scapegoat for the economy's woes. And as a wealthy, older black woman, Mary now inspired suspicion, even fear. And that is how a heroine becomes a villain. Now the press coined a racist nickname, Mammy Pleasant. And in 1883, she became entangled in the scandalous trial of a Nevada senator, accused of seducing, then abandoning a young woman. That woman was Mary's friend. It was a trial like the O.J. Simpson trial of the 20th century and went all the way to New York and it was reported everywhere, every day. Though she wasn't on trial, Mary was painted as a sinister crone with an otherworldly hold over the white people she was close to. 
But rather than rejecting the rumors, she defied them, encouraged them even during the senator's trial. At one point, she planted a voodoo doll and said that, you know, he would die. Uh, he did die during the trial, the course of the trials. And also, to Mary Ellen Pleasant, voodoo wasn't just some scare tactic. It was voodoo, a belief system from her ancestral homeland of Haiti. It was Pleasant's religion from the time she was a child. She was born the daughter of a voodoo priestess and the granddaughter of a voodoo priestess from Haiti. Scandal followed scandal. When her wealthy white business partner was found dead in her mansion, his widow collaborated on a full-page smear piece in the San Francisco Chronicle. The headline? The Queen of the Voodoos. The press had used the language of the supernatural to describe her for years. Now they made her into a flat-out monster. And the public turned on her. They exploited those rumors and called her a blackmailer. They called her a baby stealer. So I would say that it was hate, revenge, and racism. Mary Ellen Pleasant died in 1904 in her 90s. After such a life, so many achievements, this was the obituary she received in the San Francisco Examiner. Mammy Pleasant will work weird spells no more. It's telling who gets a legend and who gets a ghost story. How we're remembered depends on who's telling your story. Or as our tour guide Christian put it, under those haunted eucalyptus trees in San Francisco. But when there's three versions of your life story, we don't know what to do with your life story, we stop telling your life story, and we forget your story. He keeps Mary Allen Pleasant on his ghost hunt, he says, so that she's not forgotten. For the California Report, I'm Carly Seven. She wants you to go home. That's supposedly the voice of another ghost. This one haunts one of the oldest and most remote lighthouses in all of California. It's called the Point Sur Light Station, and it's basically this cluster of buildings perched on a giant rock just north of Big Sur. The coastline here is spectacular, and it's mostly populated by sea lions. You can actually hear them faintly barking down on the rocks right below the lighthouse. The waters on this stretch of coastline are so treacherous that lots of shipwrecks have happened here, even after this lighthouse got built in 1889. So the rock that this lighthouse sits on is really isolated. It's surrounded by water on three sides. And the first lighthouse keepers who came to live here could only get their supplies by ship. It took four hours to get here by horseback from Monterey. But for the kids who grew up here, the lighthouse keepers and their wives, it was such a beautiful place. They fell in love with these breathtaking views. 
Julie Nunez is a ghost hunter. And she says a lot of those original residents have come back here in the afterlife because it's so stunningly beautiful. This is my Shangri-La. It's just utterly beautiful and peaceful. There's something about this place that's so calming. So it makes sense that ghosts want to come back here or want to be here. Yes. Okay, so she's not just a ghost hunter. She's actually a volunteer docent here at the lighthouse. And she's the one who recorded that ghostly, now she wants you to go home. She's actually got a collection of these recordings. And she says you can often only hear the ghosts when you're playing the tape back. So it's a little bit hard to hear, but Julie says that's the voice of a former resident named Catherine Ingersoll. She was a Danish immigrant and she was married to a lighthouse keeper here. And she's apparently telling her daughter, who is nicknamed Pokey, to go up to bed. Julie says that was recorded inside the house where the lighthouse keeper's families used to live. She takes me inside that house, but first she knocks and asks permission in case any of the spirits are still around. Hello, it's Julie. Hi, Ruth. Can we come in to visit? She's talking to this ghost named Ruth. Julie says that Ruth's spirit still hangs out in the kitchen of the house because she liked to cook. Is anybody else here with us for right now that we can't see? Pokey, are you here? Can you come say hi? I don't hear anything except the wind rattling the windows, but it is getting a little bit creepy. And it's hard to tell if this is just a hokey trick for Halloween because they have decorated the house with witches' hats and fake skeleton arms. Yeah. Okay. Wait, did something just Yeah, the, the, the hand moved. The fingers on the fake skeleton hand, they actually twitch. Just slightly. Well, whoever did that, thank you. Can you make the skeleton hand move again? The skeleton hand stays still, but I do start hearing this weird buzz in my headphones as I'm recording. So Julie steps in to help. Could you stop trying to get energy from the equipment? It's affecting their reporting on all of you here at Point Sur. Would you mind stopping the static? On the count of three, one, two, three. But the ghosts don't listen. The buzz stays until we leave the building. You're probably saying at this point, okay, all of this is just a gimmick to try to get people to visit this lighthouse. Even some of the other docents I talked to do not believe Julie's ghost tales. But there is one docent, her name is Sheila Frazier, and they call her the level-headed Canadian. She says she used to be a skeptic until she had her own encounter. This was real. This was unbelievable. Sheila is the one who volunteers to clean the lighthouse keeper's house every Thursday. And one morning, she was putting away the vacuum when she says she heard something downstairs. So I sort of stepped back like this to see who it was. And there was nobody, but there was a woman. And she was right here on this top landing. And she was turn of the century, had her hair up. She's maybe in her late 30s, early 40s, long skirt. And the thing is, she was holding something. And I couldn't figure out what she was holding. She turned and looked up at me, and she was gone. 
And she she looked like a f real person, yeah, oh, yeah. flesh and bone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even if you don't believe in ghosts, visiting this lighthouse is really eerie, even during the daytime. It's got lots of creaky doors. And the wind here is so strong, it can get up to 50 miles an hour. Julie says at one point, a lighthouse keeper's dog got blown off a cliff. It survived. Now the lighthouse is automated, and the last lighthouse keeper left here in 1974. So if you do come for a visit, you might be the only person here, besides one of the docents, and maybe the ghosts. I'm not totally convinced, but Julie is hoping we can talk to some of them using her ghost hunting equipment. So I got a couple different machines. This is called an ovulus. The ovulus is this black box and it has a dictionary of like 3,000 words and supposedly each word has a different sound frequency that ghosts can use to talk to humans. And it has a kind of mechanical voice box. And the minute that we walk into what was the former blacksmith shop, the ghost dictionary starts squawking. Who's here with us right now? Walter. Hi, Walter. What the hell? At this point, I am thoroughly freaked out. They're doing a radio show and they like to interview you, Walter. Wouldn't you like to be on radio? Walter doesn't say anything else through the voice box on the machine, but it does start flashing a few words on the screen. It seems like Walter or the other ghosts know who I am because they're words like press, report, investigate, statement, thank. I am a level-headed Californian myself, and I usually do not go for the supernatural or believe in ghosts. But I do have to say, as the sun starts to set, I am pretty relieved to be getting back to Highway 1. I am not sure I could handle walking through the spooky Point Sur lighthouse at night. And now for a bit of food history. If you've ever sat down to a steaming bowl of chipino, you know that really savory seafood stew, you might have felt transported to a small town in Italy. But you'd be wrong. Right around the time that Mary Ellen Pleasant died and the first lighthouse keepers were moving into Point Sur, Chipino was concocted right here in California. You have to come to San Francisco to eat Chipino. And you should come to the wharf and have it, right? Because this is where it was born. Bianca Taylor brings us the story of Chipino as part of our series Golden State Plate. I grew up eating my Italian grandmother's homemade Chipino. And even though I've lived in the Bay Area now for more than a decade, I had no idea that it was invented here in San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf. Well, chipino is a dish that we know started sometime in the early part of the century. Mia Harriman is the general manager at the aptly named restaurant Chipino's, which is located right on the wharf, of course. 
She tells me there isn't really a strict recipe for this stew. As long as it's made with a tomato broth, you can throw in any kind of seafood you want. We have uh, snapper, we have crab legs, we have mussels, we have clams, we have shrimp. If you think of that, we serve about, in the summertime, 1,500 to 2,200 people a day. Yeah, we go through quite a bit of seafood. That is a lot of seafood. While we're talking, Mia brings me out a bowl of chipino so that I can try it too. This is enormous. There, and there's also just um, like three crab legs looking up at me. Yeah. <laughs> with a very large pincher. So it's just this beautiful red color steaming. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> A lot of tentacles happening. Considering that San Francisco is surrounded by fishable waters, it makes sense that this city is the birthplace of this iconic seafood stew. The origin of both the dish and the name derived from the Italian fishermen in the early 1900s when Fisherman's Wharf was still called Meg's Wharf. Meg's Wharf jutted out into the water nearly 2,000 feet from where Powell Street is. And it was destroyed in the 1906 earthquake, but until then, it was the place where all the Italian immigrants, mainly from Genoa, went and made their livelihoods as fishermen. Mia said it was these fishermen who invented what we now know as Chipino, sometime between 1850 and 1880. One fisherman would toss a nice fat fish into the bucket, another would drop in a succulent Dungeness crab, and other some herbs and vegetables. The cry that prompted each contribution was, chip in, chip in. But coming from an Italian throat, this American slang had to end in a vowel. So chip in o was born. Cute, right? Chipino, chip in. Makes sense. Right. So there's a lot of fake lore in food history. Wait, what? That's Erica Peters. She's director of the Culinary Historians of Northern California, and she wrote a book called San Francisco, a Food Biography. She's heard about the chip in chipino theory. But I think... Linguistically, it makes much more sense to think of it as coming from the Italian dialect, uh, chupin, which obviously does not mean chipin. Uh, it refers to f- making a soup from fish. So I talked to several other foodies and restaurateurs, and people argue for both stories. The chipin theory may be fake, but it's lasted as long as the dish itself. What's not up for debate is that Italian fishermen in San Francisco definitely invented chipino. While doing research for her book, Erica found an article from 1901, written by a journalist with the San Francisco Call, who went out with a bunch of fishermen on their boat. If you go out on a fishing boat, if you have the good fortune not to be sick, you should insist on having a dish of chespini. Chespini, that's how she writes it. And she says, this is how you make it. She gives this recipe from from 1901. Put into kettle half glass of sweet oil, one clove garlic, two large tomatoes, two chili peppers, one glass of white wine, prepared fresh fish cut into small squares. Drop into the sauce and cook three minutes. Serve hot. It really tastes much better than it sounds. I love that line because it means she thinks the readers of the San Francisco Call won't know what she's talking about. This is a new dish to them. So that's why I get to claim this is the moment of invention. I mean, of course, the fishermen had been doing it for months or or years, but... This is the moment when Anglo-Americans, people who were not Italian fishermen, got to hear what chipino is. And it wasn't that much longer until Americans could make the dish themselves. After the 1906 earthquake, there was a huge fundraising effort to raise money for San Franciscans who were displaced by the disaster. One of the things that they did to raise money was to put out a cookbook called the Refugee Cookbook. And one of the recipes included was chipino. 
And uh, I think that is the first time that San Franciscans could buy a cookbook that had Chipino in it as, a, as an official recipe that they should be making at home. Today you can get Chipino at Italian restaurants across the U.S., but it's extra special to go get it at Fisherman's Wharf, where you can still hear those boats clanging, smell the salty ocean air, and taste a little bit of history. For The California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in San Francisco. You're listening to The California Report magazine. We're the weekend storytelling show from The California Report, and we love bringing you stories from all over the Golden State, especially stories that come from our listeners, like our series Letter to My California Dreamer, where we've been asking you to write a letter to somebody in your family who came to California with a dream. This week's letter comes to us from Sarah Monroy, and it's to her father. She says his California dream was taller than the Redwoods. Dear Papa, you landed in California in 1967, during the month of July. Mendocino was your first home here, unlike any town you had known in Guatemala. In July, two years later, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. It felt like a momentous echo of your own journey to California. One small step for a Guatemalan boy, one giant leap for human survival. But Neil Armstrong had a home that he went back to. Whereas for you, orphaned as a child, there was no home or family waiting for you in Escuintla, Guatemala. You clip the front page of the Time magazine cover with Neil standing next to the words, Man on the Moon. It stayed pinned on the wall by your desk in our home in Imperial Valley. Your desert dreams swelled even in drought years. They overflowed with a hope for cultural survival and language acquisition because, like Neil Armstrong, you had to survive on a foreign moon that neither saw you nor understood your accent. You died when I was very young, but I still hear your American dream in the lingering bellow of the foghorn when I stand beneath the Golden Gate Bridge. The first time I heard that foghorn was on one of our road trips. We'd driven 500 miles and left the desert of Imperial Valley for a short vacation to escape the 100-degree heat. We joined the long trails of cars filling the L.A. freeways like ants pouring into an anthill, until finally we reached the cliff sides of Northern California. Only now that I'm a mother do I see how these road trips were not just family vacations to you, they were expressions of hunger to find your American dream. I now live in San Francisco, its skyline often ebbing and flowing from view beneath the white cloak of fog. Here, I realize my own version of the American dream by translating the dreams of immigrants into ways I can advocate for them as an attorney. I also realize it by watching my son grow up speaking and reading both English and Spanish, loving the written word as deeply as you and I. Love, Sarah. 
So we'd love to hear your letter to your California dreamer. We've got a form on our website, californiareport.org. Take a few minutes to tell us your family's Golden State origin story. And that's our show for today. I'm Sasha Koka. If you missed any part of today's show, you can subscribe to our podcast, California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer this week is Katie McMurrin, and we had additional engineering from Seal Muller, Rob Spate, and Jim Bennett. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. And our team includes Bianca Taylor, Olivia Allen Price, David Marks, Marisol Medina Cadena, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. Happy Halloween. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.